0: Life is difficult. There's diseases, there's disaster. there's betrayals, there's global warming, we have an enormous number of problems. Nobody ever promised us a rose garden. If you balance everything out, we're better off with absolute free speech than we are with exceptions. Freedom of
1: speech. Fundamental rights.
0: Freedom of conscience.
1: Academic freedom. Freedom
0: of press. And the right to listen.
1: You're listening to So To Speak. The Free Speech Podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Harvey, longtime listeners will recall that we've done an episode with you about FIRE in the past. Uh, that might have been 2019.
0: Maybe a little longer.
1: Yeah, it might have been a little longer. Yeah. I, can't, I came up to Boston to, yeah. uh, to interview you in your office, but today you're back here, down here in FIRE's Philadelphia office. It's been a couple of years. Talking to the interns. We're excited to have you back. Actually, the first time I met you was when I was a fire intern in 2010. Wow. You had come down and, and spoken to the interns. And I, I remember that conversation vividly. It happened in Fire's old office. The staff was maybe 12 or 13 people at the time. I think now we're something like 120 full and part, or part time. It's kind of amazing this organization that you founded way back in 1999 with Alan Charles Kors has grown into what it's become, hasn't it?
0: Well, in, in a way, that's disappointing because I was hoping that fire would go out of business. Instead, the problem has gotten worse, and, and in any event, fire has now expanded its, its purview from just educational um, liberties to um, the greater society. So um, it looks like we're here to stay, and um, that looks like it may be growing forever. What I realize is that my, I was really n- naive, bordering on stupidity, to think that we could solve the problem of free speech on campus in 10 or 15 years and then go out of business. But you know, the great Nat Hentoff uh, was right, that the problem of censorship and attacks on liberty are forever, and so vigilance has to be eternal. Um, and it's simply something society has to learn to live with, that you battle. Every generation has its own battles, but FIRE ain't going out of business. In addition to being
1: FIRE's co-founder, you're a criminal defense attorney. Yes. What got you interested in the law, and in particular, free speech, civil liberties work?
0: Well, first of all, I am a criminal defense and civil liberties lawyer. One of my earliest cases involved um, Harvard students arrested en masse for protesting against the Vietnam War. They were charged with riot uh, in Harvard Yard. So that was a partial criminal case, and it was a partial free speech case. So these two elements have wafted in and out of my law practice um, and my field of interest since the beginning.
1: Well, how was that case, because this story lives on in fire lore, right? And I don't know the details of it, but the way you talk about it is these students had taken over the president's office, even up to, Carrying him out in his chair? Yes. Like, so here, here, how does it intersect with here's free what, speech here's what happened. rather than civil disobedience? Okay,
0: here's what happened. The students, this was a demonstration against the Vietnam War. And what they were really demonstrating about was they believed, the students believed, and they were right, that faculty members were acting as consultants for the Department of Defense. They were pursuing um, helping the Department of Defense in this very unpopular war. And the building that they wanted, that they took over, was a building of faculty records that would have had an indication of which faculty members were working in collaboration with the Department of Defense. That's what they took over. They carried out the dean of students who happened to have his office in that building. So it's not the president, it's the dean. That's the part with the dean. Yeah, yeah. And and they took it took it over. There were about a little under, like, 195 students who were involved in this, and they were were all arrested. The Cambridge police were supplemented by the state police. They even threatened to call in the National Guard if necessary, and they charged all of them in the Cambridge District Court, and they were all acquitted because the jury was so opposed to the war that they voted their political views rather than the facts. The facts were very clear. Jury nullification. <laughs> jury, jury nullification. I couldn't believe- You can't it. advise the jury that they can do that though, right?
1: That would, that, cannot, that would resolve in the mistrial? Yes.
0: Would, you, the judge would not instruct the jurors that they could disobey with the judge's instructions.
1: <laughs> but if they all sort of decide to do that without saying that's what they're doing.
0: Jury verdicts are final mm-hmm. and there's no uh, they, they can't be punished for failing to obey the judge's instructions. For failing to follow the facts, um, it's a great country. The, uh, it, it is one of the great um, one, one of the great protections of liberty that we we have a. Uh, and this is something that um, started w- when England owned the United States. There the was trial j- of John Peter Zenger, yes. right? It was a
1: trial that resulted in a, a right. nullification of their seditious libel yep. lo- uh, application. Jury you?
0: jury nullification has a long and distinguished history. in in this republic uh, and it will continue to do so as long as the constitution is not amended to do away with it.
1: You mentioned that that case at Harvard though was a civil liberties and a free speech case. Obviously they were protesting, right? So, but how do you see the kind of relationship between civil disobedience and free speech? One of the things we find now, particularly with regard to Heckler's vetoes on college campuses, right? You're seeing this uptick in students taking over events and shouting down speakers because they don't like what they have to say. And they argue that that's more speech. At, at, At SUNY Albany, a conservative commentator, Ian Hayworth, was set to give a speech defending free speech on campus, and the students did a conga line in front of him shutting down the event and screaming, this is what free speech looks like. At Stanford, for example, when the dean apologized to Judge Duncan for the shout down on campus, her classroom was taken over and papered with flyers with, say, counter pro- that said counter-protest is free speech too. But Fire takes the position that mob censorship tactics, a taking over event, is not more speech. You, if you do it, it's civil disobedience, and you can be punished for it. And it's, it's a frankly, crime. It's, it's it's a crime. And it, so it sounds like what the students did there um, was an act of civil disobedience, although it was paired with sort of a political. Cause or a protest, civil disobedience can be protest.
0: But right? well, the students I represented, who took over University Hall, committed a crime. Mm-hmm. That was very clear. My job as a defense lawyer was to give them the best defense possible, which is what the Constitution required of me. And juries um, are able to vote. The, you know, theoretically, they obey the judge's instructions, but in reality, conscience has a lot to do with it. I actually think that's a very good idea because when a society goes over the edge and, and, and moves in a direction that is, um, that is not good, that is not authori- that's too authoritarian, a lot of people disagree with, jurors have the power to nullify. They don't have the right to nullify, but they have the power to nullify. That's a, that's a subtle distinction. And I think jury nullification is a great protector of liberty. And I have no problem with the fact that I won those cases. Um, because the Vietnam War ended shortly after that, because of the protests. What other country in the world, when the, when the people at the top decide to, um, to, to launch a war, what other country in the world ends up stop, stopping the war because of popular dissent? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, you know, we,
1: we're unique. But that's a, and, and a, I'm sorry to linger on it, but I just find it so fascinating. We don't have these conversations often on the show. There is a history in the United States of America, in the colonies, with John Peter Zenger, as I mentioned, a newspaper publisher who criticized the uh, colonial governor of, I believe it was New York, uh, I believe it was New York, it wasn't Pennsylvania, and then was put in front of a jury and the jury voted on its conscience to acquit him of the crime of seditious libel. Which seditious libel, for those who aren't familiar with it, you think of libel, you think of sort of like a defamatory statement of a falsehood. It could be seditious libel, even if it was true what you were saying on them, or it was mere opinion. So there is that history in the American colonies. Um, but jury nullification isn't supported by very many people, right? Because it's essentially the nullification of the application of a law in what you perceive to be an unjust circumstance. So amongst the criminal defense bar, so to speak, are you kind of a m- minority in, 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 in thinking that it's sometimes appropriate?
0: Well, I, don't, I haven't done a survey, but I bet you a lot of criminal defense lawyers are in favor of jury nullification. Because, you know, we've all represented people who have clearly violated a constitutional law in the situation where human judgment, human compassion, human common sense tells you this was a prosecution that should have never been brought. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, if, for example, if um, somebody injures uh, a loved one of yours, you go over and punch them in the nose. You're guilty of assault and battery. The society says, society punishes the wrongdoer. But I'll tell you right now, you would have trouble getting a conviction. you, you You would not very easily be convicted if you're charged with assault and battery because jurors would say, it's perfectly understandable. He lost his cool, it was his wife or his child who was, who was uh, assaulted by this person. True, um, he should have left this punishment to the state. He inflicted some of his own. Um, as long as you didn't maim or kill the guy, you just, you know, gave him a black and blue mark. The jury would use its common sense and human judgment experience and acquit.
1: It's interesting you bring up that example because there's a, a video going around the internet right now. There's a group in the UK that's, I think, called Just Stop Oil. They're an environmentalist activist group trying to stop the use of fossil fuels and oil. And one of the things they do is they block off streets to prevent cars from coming through. And they sit down and they hold arms and they're wearing these orange vests. And in this video that's gone viral, a woman gets out of her car and says, I need to get my daughter to the hospital. She's sitting in the car. And there are a lot of people in the comments on these videos that said, she should just drive her car through them. She's told them, she's given them notice that a life is potentially at stake. This child needs to get to the hospital. And they continue to sit there and block her from taking care of her child. Now, I don't know what the laws are over there, and I, but I imagine if she drove through these protesters, that would be something she could potentially be prosecuted for, although there would be an argument maybe that she was held hostage or entrapped or something.
0: But I'll, I'll tell you what would have what happened. If she had drove through and hurt or even killed somebody, it would be a death caused in the process of saving another. I don't think any prosecutor would bring a charge, and if the prosecutor brought it, no jury would have 12 out of 12 people voting conviction. A prosecutor is ethically required to bring a charge only when he or she is confident that there is enough evidence, and the law the circumstances are such that a conviction is likely, I do not think a prosecutor would bring that prosecution because a conviction is not likely. The jury would not criminally convict this woman for saving her child it's as simple as that. now uh, she probably what
1: she could have done,
0: and she didn't do anything
1: in this case as but, at least as so far as the video shows, she but could have
0: moved very slowly. Mm-hmm. And, and you know sort of push them aside with her car maybe they somebody would have been hurt but not not awfully likely there are ways out of these situations but if in the end somebody was hurt there wouldn't be a jury conviction in my opinion you talk about
1: jury discretion or jury nullification or the ability of a jury despite the fact uh, someone who is on trial might have clearly convicted the law if it was done or the prosecution was brought in a a context that made it seem like this, it should have never been brought in the first place. Um, They have the discretion to nullify that, despite what the judge might tell them. What about prosecutorial discretion? You see a lot of conservatives in particular, law and order conservatives right now, upset that there are many newly elected district attorneys in many cities who are not prosecuting petty crime, uh, or even pursuing, Folks who who steal from a Walgreens or or break car windows uh, in the streets of San Francisco or make life difficult uh, for 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 yeah merchant or for you know people peacefully going about their business who are who you know are just trying to purchase something in the Walmart and they see someone just grabbing things and you know the Walgreens employees are told not to do anything about the police deal with it but the police don't deal with it because they know that the prosecutors are never going to prosecute it how do you feel about Those sorts of things. The
0: problem with that is that there, of course, is is in a lot of these conundrums, there are two sides. One is that there are limited resources for prosecuting people. You're much better off prosecuting illegal possession of guns, uh, assaults, uh, batteries, murder, um, uh, crimes like that, than, than petty theft. The other side of the argument is it creates a society which becomes quite lawless in certain ways. After all, merchants have to make a living also. If petty theft gets too high, they have to close down their stores. So there are difficult questions have two sides of answers. Um, Part of the problem with the petty theft is that our society hasn't dealt with inequality well enough. And there are people who steal because they need to, rather than just because they want to. So that's that has to be put into the uh, to the mix. I think that a announced policy of not not going after uh, petty theft is a tr- puts a tremendous burden on merchants, and I think it's probably not a good idea. I think it is a is okay if these people were arrested for a prosecutor to decide we're not going to prosecute this case, or if you do six months of community service, we'll drop the charge. That's a good halfway point. A lot of these difficult questions don't have easy yes or no answers. The answer is either no but or yes but, and the thing is there is this human phenomenon called nuance, <laughs> and we don't think sufficiently in a sufficiently nuanced way about these hard issues, but there are middle points um, that can solve a lot of these problems in a nuanced way that will not give either side a complete a victory but which is better for society in the long run? Well, you
1: saw in the 90s under Mayor Rudy Giuliani the implementation of the kind of broken window policy, which is you go after these low-level crimes, broken windows, uh, theft, drug use in the streets, because the theory in their mind was these are crimes, misdemeanors, that, that signal so, sort of you know, worse behavior to come. Or the, the, the people who do these things but often it, create multiple, but it was a civil liberties disaster right. in many cases.
0: What, what, did, what the broken windows does is creates an environment where crime, petty crime is tolerated and then it leads, in theory, to more serious crimes. But when you announce you're not going to prosecute a certain kind of crime, you encourage that behavior that gets rewarded yes. gets repeated. Yep.
1: As a criminal defense attorney, and FIRE does due do process work on campus, right? I'm sure you've had experiences throughout your career whereby you're representing people who you know are guilty or who you suspect are guilty. I don't know if these are things, I'm not a lawyer myself, you ask your client, <laughs> probably not. You don't ask your client whether they did it or didn't, maybe you do. but. I think there's a fundamental lack of education around first principles in the United States, and particularly a fundamental lack of understanding and appreciation for the principles of due process, where even if someone looks very guilty, they need to be allowed to have a robust defense, either appointed or one that they, are, if, they have, if they have means, they, they um, secure themselves, they get their own, their own lawyers. Why is that the case? Why does someone who is very clear, they're caught on video murdering someone or caught on video assaulting someone. Why does that person deserve a robust defense just as much as the person where the evidence isn't as clear or there's a suspicion that it's a bunk prosecution and they okay. didn't commit the us well,
0: First of all, you realize that the Constitution doesn't talk about deserve, it talks about right. Moral issues and these ethical judgments are not in the Constitution, number one. Number two, I have never had a criminal case or I haven't asked the client if he or she was guilty.
1: Are there some lawyers who don't, though?
0: Some lawyers do not. But let me tell you why the lawyer should and why I have always done it, including in murders because a lawyer who isn't in possession of all of the facts cannot give adequate representation, vigorous representation of any defendant, because you then end up getting surprised by something you weren't prepared for because you haven't ascertained every single fact from the client. The lawyer has an obligation to not disclose this to anybody Remember, there are three groups in our society who have absolute privileges to not disclose what they learn from a client or a patient. There's the doctor-patient privilege, there's the lawyer-client privilege, and there's the priest-penitent privilege. Those are the only three. People in those three professions cannot be forced to disclose what is told to them, and the reason is that they cannot do their jobs unless they know every. Fact. Now, what is the result of the fact that I I, I found out I find out that a, 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 a client of mine has committed a murder? I say, well, you know, you're not going to take the stand. But it's not up to me whether the client takes the stand. I had one case in which a client confessed to a murder and decided he was going to take the stand and deny it. What I did was I put him on, I had to identify himself, and I said, would you tell your story to the jury? I did not ask questions, because I would not, did not want to be ethically, I did not want to be complicit in, in, in suborning perjury. Um, I probably could not have gotten in trouble for doing so, but as a matter of my own professional standards, I said, would you tell your story to the jury? told the story to the jury, was convicted. It was not a convincing story because it was against all the known facts. So there are, life is nuanced and law practice is nuanced. And there are usually ways out of any conundrum. Mm -hmm. So do you find that there's any
1: personal moral quandary that you have if you know that someone committed a murder? with providing them a robust defense? Or is the argument that, to the extent the state is going to take someone's liberty, or perhaps in some states even their life, away, the burden of proof is that on them to bring it to bear. Otherwise, you just take it at face value?
0: My, I go by the by the standard that is incorporated in the following aph- aphorism. Better that 10 guilty people go free, and that one innocent person be convicted. A society dedicated to liberty has to make the judgment in that direction. In the end, we don't live in a more dangerous society. The the biggest danger in our society is the fact that guns, that the, the court has interpreted the Second Amendment allowing anybody to own a gun, Um, I think that's probably an an overly uh, expansive uh, uh, definition of what the Constitution requires, but I'm not on the Supreme Court. There are too many guns,
1: but... Criminal defense
0: attorneys don't get on the Supreme Court, do they? They do not. (laughs) I I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'm, I'm trying to remember if she ever did any criminal defense work. She was a public defender, I believe, so she might have. But um, no, they don't get on the Supreme Court. Um, but um, I think that in the end, of course, you, what you're saying is there are costs to being in a society where liberty is valued very, very highly. I don't denow, deny that. Um, but um, but there's also,
1: there are also costs living in a society where the government can just say someone's guilty without having to prove it and throw them in jail. And And that's why I think at its core, even when when an attorney knows they're guilty, it's important that the attorney force the government to make its case.
0: You know, the question you asked me, I can't count the number of times I've been asked the question. And here's my answer. If I was a doctor and I'm walking down the street and some guy walking down the street has a heart attack, and that is a very vicious member of the mafia, a known killer, okay? And someone who is likely to kill again. Who is likely to kill again. Do I go over and apply cardiac pulmonary resuscitation or don't I? It is unethical for that the physician to make the judgment of, over life and death. Physicians take a Hippocratic oath. They have to... If they err, they err on the side of saving a life. They do not make a decision, that person should be dead. Lawyers have exactly the same obligation. My obligation is to assure that the rights of this person are protected. By protecting that person's rights, I'm protecting your rights, mm-hmm. I'm protecting my rights. Mm-hmm. And it sounds cold-blooded, but it's not. It is. You know, consistency is important. Process is important. Process is important. That's why the Constitution talks about due process. Everybody gets the same trial. You don't make decisions ahead of time as who's entitled to a fair trial and who isn't, who deserves a lawyer and who isn't. We have public defenders to represent for free some of the worst people in in the country. Um, And in the end, it protects a, a free society. Yeah, it protects the institution
1: of justice Correct. as well. I, I often fear that we lose trust in the institution, in our institutions, because we lose trust in the process that, produces, that the institutions um, go through to arrive at their outcomes. You can only trust a, the outcome of a trial if you trust that the process was fair. And you can only, It's the same thing with freedom of speech, by yep, the way. Absolutely. Like,
0: the Constitution uses the word due process. Yeah. It's right in there.
1: I mean, it's the same thing with freedom of speech right now. We see a rejection or a lack of trust in many of our institutions. You can look at the CDC around the coronavirus thing. And in many cases, because there were efforts to censor dissent. Uh, Just look at the lab leak theory of the coronavirus. It was, (laughs) it looks now like some of the, the scientists behind the proximal origins paper that was really kind of at the crux of arguing that it came from the the wet market in Wuhan rather than the, the, the lab in Wuhan, knew themselves that it was probably more likely that it came out from the lab, but they worried about the consequences of it. And you saw other institutions putting pressure on social media companies to censor people who had dissenting opinions about the origins of COVID. Well, now it looks like, according to the United States intelligence agencies, that not only is it possible that that the coronavirus leaked from a lab, it's more likely than not that it leaked from a lab. And so, and then you, you see surrounding kind of the COVID debate as well, and I'm just using that as an example because it's most recent, like um, the attempts to censor speech about vaccines or, or the eff- efficacy of masks, um, or even how you could get coronavirus, you know, once you get it outside or from surfaces, it seems less likely now And since, because there were efforts to censor and kind of calcify the science at any one moment, and then it became clear later that the science had changed, people are just, lack trust in the institutions. Um, But I think if they allowed for a more robust debate around the science or the history, um, and then the debate allowed, pushed the conversation naturally in one direction or another, they would have been more inclined to accept the conclusions.
0: Remember this, if censorship is allowed, the Civil War begins over the question of who does the censoring and who's the censor. <laughs> and if nothing else, civil peace is kept by having the same rule applied to everybody. And that rule allows absolute free speech. You
1: grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. Did that experience in Brooklyn, Ira Glasser is a mutual friend of ours, um, shape your outlook on civil liberties issue and, and perhaps lead to you going into the line of work that became your life's profession?
0: Yes. If I, was, if I grew up in Scarsdale, or I grew up in Ames, Iowa, um, I would probably have a different point of view because that would be imbued with a different culture. Well, you were, you were for a long time on the board of the Massachusetts
1: ACLU, you were its director for a while, Correct. I, In making Mighty Ira. I was shocked by the number of people who worked at the a c l u or had some connection to it who grew up in
0: Brooklyn. yeah it's like it's <laughs> well for, I was not the director, I was president of the board for president of the years. board ex- the excuse boards me for thirty years um, but um in Brooklyn, it was a pretty tough neighborhood. It was composed of fifty percent Jews who lived together in the you know, the Jewish buildings yeah. Italian Catholics. They lived in the Italian Catholic building. Um, There were a lot of conflicts between the two, even though many of them were immigrants and the sons and daughters of immigrants. They had a lot in common that they didn't realize. Uh, But um, we had a, uh, I heard heard an an aphorism. When the Italian kids called me a kike, I said to myself, sticks and stones, can break my bones, but names can never harm me. Mm-hmm. So I developed a very thick skin. And the Italian kids... Can who, we talk about
1: that aphorism too? Because I think some t- people
0: think of it literally, like words can
1: never hurt you, they can never break through your skin or uh, upset your mental equilibrium. But I think, and that might be true for some people, but I think what it's telling you is to, that you don't need to let words hurt you or harm you. That, like, that's a choice that you get to make for yourselves. Yes. And so it kind of stiffens the spine, so to speak, so that you're not a wilting flower every time someone you encounter someone Correct. Who, who might be mean-spirited. Right? But a lot of times people take it literally and they dismiss it as a result of saying, well, no, words can be hurtful. Rather than thinking it as words, don't have to be hurtful. You have a choice. There's something between what someone else has said and your reaction to it. It's how you interpret that but and more, respond more to it in your mind.
0: It's the definition of what hurtful is. If hurtful is simply your feelings are hurt, well, that's too bad. That's the price of living in a free society. You have your feelings hurt daily. Um, As long as you don't get punched in the nose. And I have developed a very thick skin, partly because I'm a free speech absolutist, partly because I'm a criminal defense attorney who's represented some very bad people, partly because I'm an academic freedom absolutist, And I believe people should be able to espouse some very weird, use the word hurtful, I hate the word hurtful, theories. Um, And I think that you have to develop a thicker skin in living in a free society. Think of the alternative. So um, is it perfect? Is it comfortable? No, but who ever promised us a rose garden? Uh, Life is difficult. There is diseases, there's disaster, there's betrayals. there's a global warming. We have enormous number of problems. No, nobody ever promised us a rose garden. If you balance everything out, we're better off with absolute free speech than we are with exceptions. It's really as simple as that. How did you get to Princeton? <laughs> <laughs> well, my f- father, who never finished high school, he was a he had three professions. He was a furrier, he was a um a cab driver in Brooklyn, and he was a he ran a candy stand, ran, didn't own, ran a candy stand in the Selwyn Movie Theater in Times Square. And um he we 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 lived hand to mouth because he didn't have even a high school education. And um so Oh, what what happened was, he as when he was a furrier, he was a member of the furriers union. He reported to the National Labor Relations Board a crooked election. He had learned about a crooked election by the Russian thugs who ran the furriers union. Two days later, two thugs showed up at our door, asking my mother if my father is Mr. Silverway home. He wasn't, fortunately. Two weeks later, we moved from. Maywood, from from Brooklyn to Maywood, New Jersey, a suburb of Hackensack, because my father got a job in a non-union fur shop in Passaic, New Jersey. So here we are now. I am in Maywood, New Jersey, a Brooklyn kid. I didn't really like Maywood, New Jersey. I was a Brooklyn boy, but my, my father's safety was involved, so we moved. Um, Princeton Had a scholarship fund set up by a fellow named Kane C A I N E. He was a New Jerseyite. He never married, never had children, and um, he he set up. He donated his full fortune from raising thoroughbred racehorses to Princeton, with the provision that before Princeton could use the income for other purposes, generally. It had to give full scholarships to three students. One from Bogota High School, which is where I went, one from Hackensack High School, which was a neighboring town, and one from uh, Hasbrook Heights High School. I was first in my class in Bogota, and I got the Kane Scholarship. Believe it or not, Princeton was the only place I could afford to go because I had a full scholarship, all tuition, all costs.
1: What did you think of Princeton when you were there? I remember talking with your co-founder of Fire, Alan Charles Kors, who it um, sounds like didn't love Princeton. No, didn't,
0: I didn't love it. I hated it. Was it was it anti-Semitic there? It was anti-Semitic. There were no blacks in my class. Fifty-two percent of my classmates were from south of the Mason Dixon line. They were segregationists. In fact, the son of the mayor of one of the one of the Governors or mayors who put fire hoses on the black demonstrators was his son was in my class. I think it might have been art Haynes um, and um uh there were there were nine blacks in my class they were all sons of African presidents who were tribal chiefs, no American blacks. The first black american black uh, I graduated from sixty four the class of sixty five had a black kid named Robert Ees. I said to Bob, how'd you get in? And he said, my father's an Air Force general, and they were afraid he'd strafe the campus if they didn't let me in. Um, It was awful. I got a first-rate education, but it really tested my uh, ability to be in a hostile environment. In an odd way, I think that my thick skin was developed at Princeton by the number of people who called me a kike. I suddenly realized what it meant to say, sticks and stones can break my bones. Names can never harm me. It was a hostile environment, to use the modern phrase. I got, but I got a great education. It was good enough so that I got into Harvard Law School. And when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? That is a story. It is one of my favorite life stories. Funny you should ask that story. <laughs> We don't have a ton of time, so okay. we'll take the abridged version. Here's the abridged version. My parents wanted me to be a doctor. All Jewish kids in my generation were supposed to be doctors. Um, I, in fact, my girlfriend was chosen for me by my parents because she was the daughter of our physician in Hackensack, New Jersey. The idea was I would go to medical school, we would marry, and I would go into partnership with her father, and then when he retired, I would have... They had their whole life planned out for you. All life planned out. (laughs) Princeton gave me a fellowship to go to Paris, the summer between my sophomore and junior year. They got me a job where I could earn a room on board. They paid my airfare. I was out of the country and away from my family for the first time ever. And I rethought my life. I decided I was not in love with this woman who they had chosen for me. Was she in love with you? I think so.
1: I'm assuming you were chosen for her as well.
0: Yes. and uh, I decided that I was more interested in the problems people cause problems and the people's germs, than the problems germs cause people. I switched from pre-med to pre-law. I broke up with my girlfriend. I went to Harvard Law School. Upon my graduating, I met Elsa Dorfman, whom I fell in love with instantly. She fell in love with me instantly. And that began a 53-year romance, which ended when she died of kidney failure in 2020. She was really a
1: fantastic human being. And for any of our listeners who uh, are interested in learning more about your late wife, uh, Errol Morris made a documentary about her.
0: The B-side, Elsa Dorfman's portrait photography, he made a. He made
1: a uh, and you guys had an incredible life together. Um, I don't probably know it as intimately as maybe Will Creeley whose father was a friend of yours. Friend right. of Elses, one of Elses' five closest friends in life. Would it, would it be fair to say that you kind of ran in beatnik circles?
0: Yes. Because a lot of your friends were famous beatniks, right? Yes. Like? Allen Ginsberg, Peter Olofsky, um, well, in a way, Bob Creeley, mm-hmm. you know, he, um, and... Uh, Bob I mean, Creeley, Will Creeley's father, is Will a Curley's, famous American poet. Right, great American poet. And, yeah. One of Elsa's five closest friends in the world, Allen Ginsberg. So um, I benefited... Was there a picture of Bob Dylan in
1: your guys' home?
0: Yes. (laughs) I I vaguely recall her taking one of those. Elsa took a fabulous photograph. Bob Dylan came to Cambridge in his Rolling Thunder Review tour. And um, we... um, Allen used to stay at our house every time he was in the area doing the poetry reading or whatever. And um, he got a note saying that uh, uh, was pinned on the door because we weren't home when Dylan came by. It said, "Alan, I'm going to be playing uh, the Harvard Square Theater tonight. The Rolling Stone Review. Come on by. I've given your name. I've left your name at the door. You can get in." So uh, Alan says to Elsa, "Hey, Elsa, this is your opportunity to take some good photographs from a friend of mine." She says, "Who is Bob Dylan?" She says, "Oh yeah, let's go." So she was Bob famous at this point? Oh yeah, very okay, famous. Okay. So she grabs me and she says, "Havie, she was born bred in Boston. Havie, let's go." So the three of us go to the to the Harvard Square Theater, and we went backstage because Alan just said, "Um, uh, tell Bob that Alan's here." So he, and Alan said, "Come on, we we'll call him." So Elsa took some fabulous pictures. She has an iconic picture of of uh, Dylan teaching Alan how to play the guitar, and it's got the date. And um, I, in fact, donated a copy to Harvard University recently, and it's hanging in the office of the president. Is it, would
1: you be okay with us sharing a photo on the, on the sure. video version of this? Sure. Just so people
0: can see what you're talking about? Yep. Um, and Larry Bacow, uh, who just stepped down from being president of Harvard, just told me the other day that the new president, Claudine Gay, she's leaving it in the office, hanging up. Oh, wonderful. That she, she, it's such a wonderful picture. And um, so, um, so, so that was, um, so Elf had a lot of poet friends, and I got to know them all. I uh, sort of benefited by her. I know a lot of people, but she knew a lot more people.
1: When you went to Harvard Law School, my history might be wrong here, but wasn't there a time, or for most of American history, in fact, where you didn't need to go to law school to become a lawyer?
0: In the early days, that's true.
1: Yeah, now you need to be in a, go to an accredited law school, yeah, in most right. cases, to become a lawyer. Right. They have reader programs in some states. There was, a,
0: there was an early period when what you had to do was apprentice to a lawyer, and it was assumed that you could apprentice and you could pick up what you needed to know. Um, I think that's probably good. I don't think you should have to go to law school to be a lawyer. I think you should you have to pass uh, tests um, for competence, but, you know... Um, You know, higher education is an industry. (laughs) There are a lot of people who say it should be, it doesn't need to be
1: three years. It could be two years. Oh, easily could be, Yeah, Yeah. absolutely could be two years. What got you interested in free speech? Do you have an origin story?
0: Um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn.
1: So that is the origin story.
0: That's the origin. It's cultural. Mm-hmm. My f- there wasn't some sort of incident in Princeton. Or- no, 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 no. It was uh, it, I was raised in a culture where you didn't punch the other guy on the nose. You called him or her a name, and that got it out of your system. And it's a it's a fabulous formula for civil peace. Is it comfortable? Well, what in life is comfortable? No, it's not always comfortable. But think of you know it's like I always talk about. Life Magazine used to have a, 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 a battle with the Saturday Evening Post. Those were the two big family magazines. Mm-hmm. And Life had a brilliant...
1: Saturday Evening Post, by the way, used to be published by Curtis Publishing, which is the building that fires offices used to be here correct. in Philadelphia. Correct,
0: correct. <laughs> I think they're in Indianapolis. Small world apartment. I know. But, but um, Life Magazine published a centerfold, two-page spread, and it said... And you know, Life had white, red letters on a white background. That was the logo, Life. And on the, if you hold up the centerfold, it said, "Life, consider the alternative." And of course, it was a double entendre. The alternative for the ad was the Saturday Evening Post. But but, you know, think of the alternative to Life. It was a brilliant ad. And um, and, and in fact, Life Magazine. My my parents neither my, my neither of my parents went to college. My father never finished high school. There were no books in my house, but there was one thing we had: a subscription to Life Magazine. It was mostly pictures. It was called the Picture yeah. Magazine. Yeah. We had Life Magazine in the house. That was what I was brought up with.
1: When you met Professor Kors at Princeton, did you ever anticipate? Did you guys have kind of a shared concern for academic freedom and freedom of expression at that point, or did it only come as you went through your career as a criminal defense attorney, seeing what's happening? And you're were you were like a Cambridge institution, just so our audience knows, and you very much tied in with what's happening uh, in Harvard Yard and Harvard Square. Uh, and then, of course, Alan went on to become a professor, uh, one of the greatest professors of the Enlightenment in America, if not the world. Um, so, you, so you both knew about campus Issues including violations of free speech, yes. speech rights. So, did it just evolve over time?
0: We were friends at Princeton. Then, what happened, and, and we came to Cambridge, I believe he got his PhD at Harvard, and I got my law degree at Harvard. Oh, did he grow? Wasn't he at Harvard? I don't know. I don't know.
1: Maybe. <laughs> I think so. It's probably easy enough to find online.
0: Anyway, what happened was um, he, there was an incident. At Penn, where a Israeli student, Israeli-born student, Edin Jacobowitz, was prosecuted for racial harassment, because a group of black sorority sisters were hooping it up during this was during exam period. They had finished their exams. He still had to study for his exams, and were outside this dorm room making a lot of noise. And he was trying to study. So he yells out, he opens the window, and yells, "Shut up, you water buffalo!" Sheldon Hackney, the appropriately named president of Penn at the time, got the theory that he was it was a racial epithet because he thought water buffalo was a large, unruly black animal native to Africa. Well, in fact, water buffalo are not black, they're brown, and they're not native to Africa, they're native to Asia, and Eden, whose first language was Hebrew was and, and, and Yiddish, was calling them... Uh, his, what he to the best English translation he could make of the word behama behemoth is a large, unruly animal that my grandmother used to call me when I was unruly. you know stop being a behama, my grandmother spoke only Yiddish, stop being a behemoth a large, unruly animal that's what he was there was no racial uh, overtone or meaning at all. Quarters called me up and said. He was the faculty advisor to Eden, but they needed, to, they needed an expert in free speech and academic freedom. Could I work with Kors on the defense of Jacobus? I said, sure. And we did. We, we, um, Kors was brilliant in his defense. He got every newspaper in the country interested the national in National headlines. It became a cause. National headlines. Yeah. It was a cause. Um, I helped on the legal end. We were going to sue Penn if we had to, but we prevailed. He prevailed because Hackney finally realized he was wrong. And because of the pressure of the press for stuff, he had to admit it. And, that's, and, and and after that, Kors and I started getting requests by faculty members and students about their own free speech problems. We couldn't handle it all. We had day jobs. We started fire. We hired one executive director, and Kors and I volunteered to, as much time as we could. And I expected fire would go out of business in eh, 10, 15 years because the problem of censorship on college campuses was such a self-contradiction, so absurd, that it would be like you know, toppling over a, a tower of dominoes. Well, I was wrong about that. It's more, been more persistent. We now have uh, 120 I think, uh, employees. For some reason, the number 124 full and yeah. part-time. So, um, you know, it um, might include interns or co-ops. So I've now um, forgot about I'm no longer predicting anything, <laughs> but um, uh, obviously the fight for liberty, as Ira Glassom probably has told you, is eternal. It's never won, but you're lucky if it's never lost, if it goes on forever. And that's okay with me now. I'm adjusted to the fact.
1: Last question here, because I know you have a train to catch to head back up north. We talk about Brooklyn a lot. I have a lot of experience talking with people who went into civil liberties, particularly free speech work, because they grew up in Brooklyn. There's an old saying that if you call up the ACLU with a free speech case and get someone with a Brooklyn answer, accent on the phone, yeah. then you're probably in good hands. It's cultural. But, the, but we live in an increasingly empathetic society, right, where bullying is top of mind for parents and educators, and there are a lot of systems in place to, to ensure that kids' interactions with each other don't devolve into name calling or to bullying, so if if free speech and IRA talks about the same it's same sort of story It's like you know they were on the streets of Brooklyn, there were no parents there to mediate their differences they used to they figured out how to solve their disputes through through words and sometimes that <coughs> meant name calling but you you came out of it knowing that you had agency and you could figure out things on your own in an increasingly empathetic and sensitive and um kind society, do you worry that people will appreciate freedom of expression the same
0: way? You guys did. First of all, let me tell you, the movement toward uh, outlawing hate speech, the movement toward protecting kids' feelings rather than the rights of those who want to call them names is very dangerous. Dangerous. Why? Because it doesn't give you any indication of whom you should not turn your back on. I was very good. in him. When people called me a kike, I said to myself that's somebody I'm not going to turn my back on. That's somebody I'm not going to trust. That's somebody who hates me. I knew that because we were free to call each other names. The ability to express hatred is easily as important as the ability or the right to express love. I love you and I hate you with two sides of the coin, but you want to know who loves you and you certainly want to know who hates you. There is no, no distinction should be made legally between hate speech and love speech. It's as simple as that.
1: Well, I think we have to leave
0: it her- there,
1: Harvey. We've got a lot more stories that we could run through, and so hopefully we have... Endless. It's an excuse for another podcast, but I appreciate you taking the time here on your visit to Fires Philly office. And- Maybe next summer you come back, talk yep. to next year's interns, and we do part two. Yep. Thanks again. This is part
0: three, actually, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah. The, 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 yeah, I guess the first podcast we did was kind of your story of the founding of FIRE up until kind of now and talking about things that were happening today. I wanted to get a little bit more of your background here and also your background about being a criminal defense attorney. So I think we got that. But I'm sure you have a lot of stories about working with clients between you know, Princeton a, and the founding of FIRE. That, there's
0: a report for the Boston Globe. Mark Feeney, who did the obituary, he's a, he's actually their movie reviewer, but he did the obituary of Elsa because he um, he he was so cl- he was a good friend of hers, and um, so he did her obituary. She had so many interesting friends: Allen Ginsberg, Errol Morris. You know, yeah. yeah. So, and and the, he has said to me that he thinks I should write a memoir of life with Elsa. That she was so interesting that I should write a memoir about it. And I'm thinking of it. Right now, you know, I'm doing a book, Shadow University, Part 2, with Sam. Samuel Abrams. Yeah. And assuming I'm still sentient after that, I am 81, um, uh, I'm thinking of doing um, a book about life with Elsa because it was so interesting. I mean, so interesting.
1: You should, at the very least, sit down and tell the stories. You know, you tell the stories, record them, it might make writing that memoir a little bit a little bit easier. Yep. And you can get, you know, someone to kind of help you pull it all together. Yep. Um, but I, I would be interested in reading that book, so I do hope that you find the time to do it. I hope I find the time to do it. Thanks, Harvey.
0: All right, Nico.